Hey guys, welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven, that is my book-loving wife, Liberty. And we're a married couple with different interests, and we try to bring each other into our hobbies through the latest news in both books and sports. And today is, again, as we know, everybody's favorite episode, the book episode. You said that weird, but alright. I say everyone, but I was going to exclude myself because I prefer sports still. (sighs) One day. (laughs) Eventually. Right. It'll happen. Getting right into the book news. This thing that I found is weird and interesting and I kind of love it. So I hope you do too. Okay. Author Will McLean released his debut novel, The Apparition Phase. But it's sort of come with a mystery outside of the story because he signed a thousand copies of his book for an independent London-based bookstore called Goldsboro Books. And on each page that he signed, he wrote a word. And if you get all the words and put them together in the correct order, they make their own mystery short story. And there is currently a group on Twitter trying to collect all of the words to put the story together. So is it like the words are scrambled or is every page the right way the words are? So like page one is the first word, page two is the second word? Or is it really like a scramble? Like they're going to have to figure it out. It's one word per book and I don't know if it's in the right order. Like the first one he signed is the first word or like the 50th one that he signed is the first word. Right. But they are currently collecting them over on Twitter and they're going to have to put it together to make a story. Yeah. I think they might be numbered maybe because i saw on the screenshot of them collecting it that it said word number blah 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 is this so but due to the pandemic and shipping issues it may take a while before this whole thing is complete yeah i just really like it as like a marketing scheme i think it's interesting for sure and and like the cool thing about it is in the end i guess you get a like a short story out of it yeah once everyone's gotten a copy and figured it out Right. And speaking of mysteries, maybe segue into the next story. Okay. The estate for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories, is currently suing Netflix amongst several other parties, but the main one being Netflix, for their portrayal of Sherlock in the Enola Holmes movie. So Sherlock Holmes himself as a character is in the public domain, so it can be used for whatever. But the Doyle estate still has a copyright on the portrayal of the character. So if he is not portrayed correctly, they can sue. (laughs) And their claim states that Sherlock was too likable in the movie. Oh, no. Well, I mean, they do have something there. Like, it legally, is a, they do, obviously. But. Well, not just legally. Like, that is a main part of his character. He's not supposed to be likable. Right. So I can understand that to a degree, but at the same time, it's like, really? It's a little petty. So they're saying, like, the actual Sherlock Holmes in the Enola Holmes movie is too likable. Yeah. Okay. I was super confused. I thought they were taking a shot at Enola Holmes. I'm like, really? Really? Some pettiness right there. No. The Sherlock Holmes character in Enola Holmes was too likable, so they want to sue. Interesting. Yeah. So could Netflix avoid it if they pulled it down and then, like, made him a little bit more of a jerk? Well, I mean, how would you even reshoot it at that point? I don't know, but they'd figure it out. They have enough money to avoid a lawsuit, so... Or they can just settle out of court, probably, is what's going to end up happening. I don't know. It's dumb, but at the same time, I like my Sherlock to be the way my Sherlock is. I haven't seen the Enola Holmes, so I can't speak to how he's portrayed there. Nor have I. 
But I had a phase in one of my summer jobs that every time I went on lunch, I would read a Sherlock Holmes story on my lunch. So I'm very familiar with his character and I agree that he's not supposed to be likable. At the same time, it's like, you're going to go that far. Arguably, though, like even in the TV show that we've been watching. Elementary. I feel like he's not like likable, likable, but I like him as a character. Right. I think the problem with the Enola Holmes movie is that he's He's likable, likable, and Uh, likable as a character. Whereas you can like Sherlock Holmes as a character without him actually being like a likable person. I can understand that. So I think that was their problem. And Reed Pop is retiring both Book Expo and Book Con after the pandemic has put a spotlight on the issues that are plaguing these events. Plaguing, that was not on purpose. Like canceling temporarily or? No, permanently retiring these events. That sounds like a bad idea. So Book Expo was an event for authors and publishing houses to come together and showcase upcoming titles, discuss industry-related things, and all of that stuff. But Book Con was an event for fans to interact with some of their favorite authors or publishers, and they would, for their ticket price, receive some arcs for upcoming titles. But apparently these events were already having issues before the pandemic, but the pandemic highlighted the need to change these things. So they're currently trying to think out other sort of conventions and things that they could do instead. Because both events, I guess, had been losing money for a while. I feel like as a whole, conventions shy of like the comic cons of the world have been probably hurting a little bit. Like I remember as a kid growing up just going to like car shows. And they were packed in like sardines. And like when we went to the most recent one, the Dallas one we went to, it was like there were people, but it wasn't like crazy right, by any yeah. means. I think conventions just aren't as popular as they used to be. And I think you're going to have to add things or change things or do it differently or lower prices in order to really pull in the same numbers you were pulling in back when it started. Yeah. Because it's truly getting to the point where it's insane. Like, as a kid growing up in San Diego, obviously, I was able to go to Comic-Con for the most part whenever I wanted until more recent years. Like, you literally, when I was 10 years old, could buy a ticket the day of the day you wanted to go see things. Right, and, right. And Well, and I think it was also different when you were a kid. Like, the it was still formatting comics. were still yeah. different. Yeah, yeah. You, you went there for nerdy collectibles. You didn't go there for movie releases and like things like that. Like Marvel crap, yeah. yeah. I can kind of understand that argument. So... We'll have to wait and see what happens. Like, they still, I believe, have events like Y'all West and Y'all Fest and stuff like that. So I don't think all conventions as a whole are ending this year, but I think a lot of them have had to. Yeah. And then the piece of news that I'm most excited for, despite the fact that you would never think this is something I'm excited for, is that this past week, filming for Disney Plus's Hawkeye has started, (laughs) which led to some news coming out about the show. He's laughing because he knows that's my favorite character. I was going to say, I I am not surprised. But comics as a whole aren't my thing. Usually speaking, they are not. That's correct. And I will say that I like Hawkeye, but I know very little Hawkeye specific stuff. I don't have the comics. I haven't read the comics. So like... You're just like people with bows and arrows. Let's just get it clarified. (laughs) I don't know that that's it. But it's come out that Haley Steinfeld has been cast as Kate Bishop. And photos of her on set have been released. If you're looking for those, they're on the internet. Now, Kate Bishop is a girl who was born privileged, 
but she had to learn self-defense in the wake of an assault, and she becomes Hawkeye's mentee, and eventually a member of the Young Avengers, a couple comics into the series. Okay. So that's who she is, an important character. And Lucky the Pizza Dog has also been photographed on set. He's a golden retriever. He's very cute. Interesting. And there's been a clint with both hearing aids and cuts and bandages that are similar to the Matt Fraction comic book series. So Matt Fraction has a Hawkeye run that was from August 2012 to July 2015. And it is the most beloved version of Hawkeye that I have seen on the internet. Okay. I was going to say, I... I am a comic person. I wouldn't say nerd because there's a lot of people out there will hate on me like, well, you haven't read this and you haven't read that. But I've never been a big Hawkeye fanatic or follower by any means. So like, I I don't know. Like, of course, I'll watch it. I like a lot of this kind of stuff. But at the same time, I'm not going to be like, how dare they? They did this wrong because I'm not going to know. So, you know, gatekeepers are going to try to keep people out of things <laughs> if they feel like they don't know them. That's why I felt like I had to specify that. I like Hawkeye as a character and like as the idea of this character, but I don't know his source material and I'm going to be honest about that. Right. So like a lot of the information I looked up and it wasn't something that I just knew from having read the comics or whatever, but that doesn't make me any less excited to watch the show when it finally comes out next year. I think it's next year. Interesting. So that will be fun to watch, I think. I think we'll both probably enjoy it. I think Matt Fraction's version of Hawkeye, from what I was able to see on the internet, is more of a, like, sarcastic kind of... I don't know. It's kind of like how I like Jessica Jones because she's like gritty and a real person. And I think Hawkeye is the same way. Okay. It'll be a fun show to watch for sure. It sounds like it would be. You know, I'm always down for some nerdy stuff, as you know. So. And speaking of comics, DC has announced on Friday afternoon that it will be launching a new Swamp Thing series in March of 2021. That's all I know about it. That's pretty much all that's come out about it. So look out for that if you like Swamp Thing. I don't, but... Me neither, particularly. Like, it's a classic. Like, when it comes back to watching, like, the old movies and stuff, great. But I don't know. I mean, they showed a page from it on the article I was reading about it, but it looked like a cool art style. Like, I like the art that's probably going to be throughout it. Yeah. I don't know that Swamp Things for me, per se. And after waiting literal years for news on the Amazon Prime's Lord of the Rings show... Tolkien fans finally have some casting news. 20 actors for the show have been announced this week. Right now, not a lot is known about the series, but we do know that this show is going to take place during the Second Age, which will put it before the events of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So it looks like it's going to be a prequel to those movies. Okay. And filming for the Lord of the Rings... Amazon's show has started filming again after the shutdown that took place thanks to COVID. Still, there's no date for the release, but at least they're filming. Yeah, filming is filming. Still a lot more to come. Pandemics kind of delayed a lot of those projects. I'm sorry. Yeah, they really did. That's why we're waiting for The Witcher still. Impatiently. And in more J.R.R. Tolkien news... His home in Oxford will be up for sale soon, and the actors who starred in the movie adaptations of his work have started a campaign to buy it and turn it into a center dedicated to his literature. That'd be cool. And the crowdfunding campaign is called Project Northmoot. 
Project Northern Moot? Yeah. I don't know if that's a reference to something, because I've only read the first Lord of the Rings, but who knows. And it has a goal of $6 million, $5 million for the purchase, and $1 million for renovations. And it'll do a bunch of things for literacy and have programs for literature and helping communities and stuff like that. So it's not just like a shrine to Tolkien. It's also this outreach program. Yeah, that sounds great. But it's Project North Moor. That's not what the article said. There's an R. I'm looking at it right now, the website. Okay. I promise you it's that not makes Moot. More, that makes more sense. <laughs> but I'm just saying what the article I read said. I'm like, North Moot? Somebody Moot. made a really large typo. <laughs> and it wasn't me for once. It's amazing. Yes. I was like, that sounds like a Moot point, but I don't think that it's was It's only right. a North Moot. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any other book news? Because that was it for me. It was pretty thin week. I really don't have much. I looked into a couple of things while you were talking about it. I, I also agree on the comic drawings of Swamp Thing. Pretty cool looking. Right? That looks um, nice. They didn't really release a whole lot to look at, but no. the stuff you got to look at wasn't too bad. The one I'm thinking of, it's a red background with a guy in like excruciating pain and then like Swamp Thing's above him or something like that. Yeah, that's the one that was pretty much everywhere I looked. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the Project Northmore thing is kind of interesting. They, I think Northmoot just rolls off the tongue. Northmoot. <laughs> they have multiple tiers that they're trying to do. So at 5.4 million U.S. dollars, they can buy the house. At 6.1 million U.S. dollars, they can renovate it into a homely house Tolkien would recognize and restore the gardens of the home. For 6.2, they could establish a fund for bursaries to help those from a low-income background come to the house for one of their creative courses or special events. So basically, like bring people from poor neighborhoods to come take care like take part of those cool special writing events and things they host so yeah i think that's pretty neat honestly there's a couple more tiers but they start to kind of get weird like building a hobbit house at the end of the garden and then building a tolkien tree see and, that's just and smokes lair for pipe smokers how to use money yeah it's like when you get to the six point roughly five million dollars they're gonna build a one of smog's lair so that you can go and smoke it'd be like the smoking section of the facility and i'm like that's kind of cool but stupid it's it's a waste of money but <laughs> Truly, yeah yeah, but yeah, if, if they're not able to raise the funds, basically what it sounds like, they're going to just basically do the more fundraising related stuff, trying to like bring and grow education in lower income neighborhoods in the United Kingdom. So yeah, which is kind of cool. I don't think Tolkien really needs a shrine, but the UK probably does need these outreach programs. So yeah. and you could probably get a lot of little hobbitsies to help. Yeah, I, I would imagine that it probably ends up getting funded. The only concern is right now, because we are in a global pandemic, a lot of people are kind of holding their money closer to themselves than they usually did. Or if they're donating, they're donating to things like food banks and not necessarily building up this house. Yep. But yes, that is all the book news I have. I didn't really go digging for anything this week particularly. That's all right. You corrected me on some stuff. Well, I, I, I learned some things too, so... That was good. Yeah. Well, instead of doing a tag this week, I decided to do my favorite books of 2020. It's getting to be that time of year. Everyone's coming out with their favorites list. So I thought I would list my... It was going to be 10, but I wrote 12 favorite books of 2020. Yeah. Do you have any favorites before we get into my favorites? Considering you read exactly seven books... (laughs) my favorite honestly is gosh it's between prisoner and goblet i think those two were like so close in the quality 
And the only reason I like Prisoner so much is because I read it before as a child. And it brought back a lot of memories as a kid. Yeah. Where I was just like, man, I loved this book then. And I, like, years later, I still love it. Because I read it when it came out. Yeah, yeah. So, like, a long time ago. I think this is a problem that a lot of Harry Potter fans have, is choosing between three and four. That seems to be everyone's top two. I really liked Goblet because you really get the ball rolling on everything, finally. And there's a lot of really good action scenes because you have the competition going on, the Triwizard Cup. I'm going to go with Prisoner just because of my childhood memories. I feel like it really bonded to me more. Goblet in a close second, but I really don't want to try to put the other books in order because I feel like... no, please don't. I I would either piss people off or... I do that every day. It's all right. Or I would misplace them right now. Now, I think after we're done with the movies and stuff, I'm going to do like the rankings of them on social media so you guys can see them. But otherwise, I don't know that that's something I really want to delve into necessarily without like creating an uproar. Yeah, I think the reason people like the third Harry Potter so much is Voldemort's not in it, and so you get more of... I'll be honest, I didn't even connect that as one of the reasons. Yeah, and you get more of Harry living his life, but then you also have all this background from his family history and his godfather and all this other stuff. Yeah. But people also like the fourth because there is so much world building. And for me, that's one of my favorites because I get to see wizards being wizards outside of Hogwarts. And I get to see these characters that I haven't met before, like Bill, Charlie. And you also get international wizards coming in. So you can see the difference between the UK wizards and the wizards from foreign countries. So for me, it's just so much more expansive than I think any of the other books really get to be. Right. But that's my two cents on your two favorites of the year. And now for my favorites of the year, none of these books rated below a 4.25 stars. Yeah. So between 5 and 4.25. And I don't have these in any particular order except for this is the order that I read them in. So my first on this list is The Hand on the Wall by Maureen Johnson, which I rated 4.5 stars. It is the finale of the Truly Devious series which is a murder mystery boarding school series. It's got the closed circle mystery. It's got an isolated setting. This starts with Stevie Bell, who she gets accepted into a program at a very prestigious boarding school and goes off to Vermont into the mountains and goes there to hopefully solve a murder case that happened at the school when it was originally founded, but then murder starts happening while she's there. Right. And that's like the basis for the whole trilogy. There will be a fourth book in the series, but it's not part of the original trilogy really. It's like its own thing. And that's coming out next year. So I get to reread this because I reread series before the next one comes out. But why would you reread stuff that's a normal series when this is more or less like a standalone offshoot? It's to reset myself in that world and also to remember things that I may have forgotten about characters and less about plot or setting. Gotcha. Also, that's just kind of what I've always done with any series as I reread the books before the next one comes out. I've always done it. And the second book on the list is Traitor to the Throne by Alwyn Hamilton. This book I rated five stars. I feel like those are the first five stars that we're talking about here on the podcast. 
Yeah. This one is sort of more fuzzy in my mind because I binge read this whole series in like two weeks. <laughs> so it's the second book in the Rebel of the Sand series. And this is a YA desert fantasy. And basically, you've got this girl who lives in a small town who wants to leave it for the big city. And she's very good with a gun, but eventually we find out that the gun may be preventing her own magical abilities. And she gets into a shooting contest with a foreigner and sees that she could earn this money and escape her tiny town she doesn't want to live in anymore. But things kind of go to hell there. And then all this stuff sort of unfolds throughout the series. And book two, I feel like you got a lot more about the characters and less about the setting. And I feel like also you had this really strong and independent girl doing what she has to to survive. I know it's hard for you to give five stars as well. Yeah, so if I give something a five stars, that means like it is one of my favorite books. Period. Not just of the year, but like period. So it's the only five star on this list. I'm impressed. But I feel like I need to reread the whole series because everything's a little blurry. (laughs) Since I read it so fast. Right. The third book on my list is House of Earth and Blood by Sarah J. Mass. I rated it 4.5 stars. This was like the most talked about book this year or one of. It is a not really new adult, but adult feels new adult-ish fantasy. And it's the first book in the Crescent City series. That's hard to say. Try it five times fast. I will not. (laughs) And so basically this girl who's got this sort of mysterious family history, doesn't know a lot about her father, goes into the big city to try to make a life for herself there and also dig up more about her past. But while she's doing that, her best friend gets murdered. And a few years later, it turns out that the person that they arrested for the murder may not have been the one to do it. So she decides to solve the case with the help of one of the angels who is working to solve the case. It's about a lot more than that. This book is about a thousand pages long. Yeah. And it's chunky and it took me a week and a half to read. It's a lot. But it's also really good. Like no one can argue that Sarah J Maas doesn't know how to write a story. She doesn't know how to write a concise story would be my argument. But book two is supposed to come out next year. I'm nervous partially because that means I have to reread this thousand page novel. But also I'm nervous because of the way that book one ended. It was a little bit on a cliffhanger, so things could get uglier. So what you're saying is she wrote the book well because she wants you to also buy the next book. Well, obviously, (laughs) but... It's just a little frustrating for things to be left on a cliffhanger when you just finished reading a thousand pages. Yeah. And I think that was my chief complaint is like, normally I want things to be longer. This one, I was like, we could have put a break in there somewhere. Yeah. And then Switching Directions Entirely is In a Holidays by Christina Lauren. I talked about it here when I did my Christmas in July. I rated it 4.5 stars. It is the Christmas version of Groundhog Day is how 
how I explain it to people. Basically, this girl is going to this family home to do Christmas like they do every year, and it turns out that this is probably gonna have to be the last year to do it. So when she's leaving the cabin, she just makes a wish that she gets shown what will truly make her happy, and they get in a car accident, and the next thing you know, she's on the plane going to this vacation home. And she spends the whole loop trying to figure out how to make the loop stop, but also how to make herself happier. So does the loop start every time the car accident happens, or does it start when she's on the plane? That's an interesting question. So she goes through the whole holiday that week that she's there, and then the car crash happens and she gets put back on the plane. So the loop technically restarts at the car crash. Well, except for... It's not just then that it starts up again, because if she does anything to get physically injured, she gets transported back to the plane. So the plane is where it restarts then? It would be the plane. It restarts at the plane every time, but the place where it jumps back is different throughout. Okay. If that helps. Not really, but that's fine. All right. And I'm actually planning on rereading this one because I read it in the middle of July. So it didn't feel very Christmassy while I was reading it. So I just decided I'm so far ahead of my goals this year. I'm just going to reread it around Christmas. Yeah. And then what is, I don't know. I want to say it's my favorite, but I have one that's rated higher than this. So how do I say this one's my favorite? I don't know. My rating system's all messed up. You don't say. One of my favorite books of the year, The Inheritance Games by Jennifer Lynn Barnes. I rated 4.5 stars. Also talked about it on the podcast. It is like Knives Out, but in young adult literature with more puzzles and less knives. Makes sense. Considering in Knives Out, there were a lot of knives. (laughs) Yeah. And so you have this girl who inherits this billionaire's vast fortune except for small amounts of money that get left to the other inheritors. She has to start living at his house immediately with the rest of the family and stay there for an entire year before she can inherit the fortune. She just kind of has to survive and it goes from there and it's amazing and everyone needs to read it (laughs) because I don't see enough people talking about this book. Yeah. And one that I think... This is one of those reads that you really enjoy, but it's kind of garbage, but you love it anyway. And it's written and read by Anne Bishop. I rated it 4.25 stars. It is an adult urban fantasy about a blood seer who, anytime she gets cut, she has a vision based on the questions of the people who are around her at the time. And so she is stuck living at this place where everything about her life is controlled so she doesn't accidentally bleed and have a vision. And so that they can make money off of her visions. And one night in winter, she escapes and finds solace in this less great part of town, which is where all of the mystical creatures live, like werewolves and vampires and stuff like that. And everything goes from there as people try to steal her back. And it is one of those things that I could have read all of this series in like five days very easily. Yeah. And it's really good and it's compelling. There's a little bit of romance if you like romance, but it is interspecies if you don't like interspecies sort of things. I can't speak to what I like about books yet because I don't know, but that does sound a little strange. That's something I don't think you would like. We talked about that before on the podcast, but... I thought it was really good. It's one of those what I call cotton candy reads. Like, it's not the next best thing in literature, but it's still something that's easy to read and fun. 
something that is one of the next best things in literature is The City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty. I know I've talked about it on this podcast. A couple times. And it is about a con artist in Egypt in the 18th century who soon discovers that she has accidentally summoned a jinn warrior who takes her to Devabad where all of the jinn and Deva live. And there's war and uprising and a lot of fantasy tropes happening here. Yeah. It's really good. I read the whole series in like two months and the books are pretty chunky. And a book I read very early on in the pandemic is Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, which I rated 4.25 stars. It is a book about a pandemic. And so... So you chose to read it during a pandemic. Basically, what had happened What had happened was... I've had it on my TBR for so long. And then we got into the pandemic. I got sick with it. And I was like, I'm stuck in bed. I might as well read about other people who have gotten sick and died. So (laughs) That makes total and complete sense. (laughs) It doesn't have to make sense. It's just how my brain works. Gotcha. And it was really good. I think there were so many parallels to what was happening at the time that I sort of had to like distance myself from the characters and hold them at arm's length because it was a lot. So I think that's why my rating is so low for this book. A lot of people rate it higher than I have, but it's still 4.25. It's still one of the best books I've read this year. I love that you're like, I rated it low, but 4.25. Well, I rated it lower than I think I would have if I wasn't currently dying of the plague. So do you think you would have given it a five or do you think it would have been like a four and a half or a four Four and and three quarters? Four and a half, four and three quarters. It wouldn't have been a five star, I don't think. And then I read a novella while I was still stuck in bed, and it was All Systems Read by Martha Wells. This one I rated 4.25 stars, and it is... How do you describe this series? The Murderbot Diaries is about a science fiction world where... If you are going to terraform or develop other worlds, you have to have a security robot with you. And so we have the perspective of this security robot on this planet as this team is getting attacked. And all the robot wants to do is stay in his pod and watch his shows, but he can't because he has to do his job. And so it's a really good series. I love them. Yeah. I cannot wait for the next one. It comes out next year. You love a sassy AI. I'm not shocked. No one is surprised. This is common knowledge. We all know this. And the next one is Fable by Adrian Young, which I rated 4.25 stars. It is the first book in a duology about this girl who has a pirate father who basically dropped her off on an island one day and said, deuces, take care of yourself. I feel like that's a very common pirate thing, though. Like, just abandoning people on islands is just a Your normal... own child? Your own child. Yeah, I've heard worse, I'm sure. And so she has to learn how to take care of herself. It's sort of a cutthroat sort of place that she was dropped off at. And all she wants to do is get back to her father, who said if she can make it off this island and find him again, she can get her inheritance. So it's not like she was marooned, necessarily. She was left on a populated island. She was left on a semi-populated island. There's, like, a handful of people. It's not like it's super 
well taken care of, well known place. It could have been like just a desert island. Like I'm picturing something out of Pirates of the Caribbean where they just leave Jack Sparrow on this just literally just a sand strip with a tree. Yeah. You know? Well, it's a little bit better than that. And she eventually does make her way back to her father and things go to hell. Yeah. It was really good, and also this cover is stunning. I don't know if you've seen it. It's gorgeous. I have it, but I'm going to have to do something creative at some point with covers, I'm sure, and start rating those as well and changing that around, so. And one I've read more recently is In the Hall with a Knife by Diana Peterfrund. This is the Clue Mystery Series book number one. I rated it 4.25 stars. It's about a isolated closed circle mystery in a boarding school in the mountains of Maine are the hills. I was honestly waiting for you to talk about this one the whole time. Well, I really enjoyed it. It's not my highest rated, but it's up there. Right. And basically it took a lot of things I love about Clue, a lot of stuff I love about isolated closed circle mysteries and did it well. And so I really enjoyed this. I didn't enjoy book two as much. That's why it's not on this list. But the third one comes out next year. So I get to reread this one at some point. Yeah. And the last book on this very long list is Mistletoe and Mr. Wright by Sarah Morgenthaler, which I rated 4.25. This is the second book in the Moose Springs Alaska series, and it's about side characters from the first book who have a romance of their own, and it's happening during Christmas, which I love, and then also it's sort of about this outsider having to deal with the fact that she's trying to develop the land in this town and no one really wants her there yeah and dealing with that as well as family drama and then you have this other guy who you know he's got cats and he's taking care of his nephew and feels like he's an outsider too but he's lived in this town his whole life and so they come together and have a romance yeah so that's very cute so far, I'm pretty much on par with what you've decided on your list. Like, there's a few of them that I don't didn't remember, but that's only because I have a lot on my plate throughout this year, thanks to the pandemic, like most people, so... Well, and I've read 120 books this year. I don't think you and I have discussed all 120 of them. Well, in some way, shape, or form, we probably have, because a lot of the times I, when I come home, I ask you how your reading was for the day, and you either tell me meh, or you tell me it was great, and then you start telling me all about the book. So those are the ones that you're talking about, so I probably know more about those ones. Yeah, yeah. As for what I've been reading this week, I feel like I read a lot and I read nothing at the same time. Yeah. So I don't know how that could be possible. But the first thing I read was a novella called A Mistletoe Kiss by Jennifer Fay. I rated this one 2.75 stars. So it was meh, but it was on the downside of meh. Right. And so it wasn't horrible, but it also didn't knock my socks off. And I think that's sort of a problem I have with most novellas is that they're too short for me to get fully invested right which is disappointing but it also had a lot of christmas things that i like it had a puppy which was adorable and so like there was a lot to love here but it was still meh and basically it's a story about a girl who has had a really crappy two years romantically she got left at the altar a guy cheated on her and so she's decided to give up on relationships but then she's got a new next door neighbor whose dog messes up her day, of course, and they have a meet cute out on her lawn, and she realizes that maybe she shouldn't be giving up on romance. And he's ex-military, and he just wants to have a quiet Christmas until her family accidentally assumes that they're dating, and it's a fake dating trope. 
Hmm. I like fake dating tropes for the most part. It's got angst. It's got a sort of like, will they, won't they? So I don't know why this didn't knock it out of the park more for me. I think a lot of the problems stemmed from how short it was, but part of it was the characters and part of it was the setting and part of it was just illogical because her job is making charms and jewelry and that sort of thing in this really tiny town. And I don't know how you can financially take care of yourself when you live in a teeny tiny town and you work in like jewelry. Online business, Etsy. Maybe. Yeah, it's, Who it's knows? realistic to some extent anyways. I think probably not to the extent that it was displayed in the novel. Yeah. Like she was living beyond what her means probably actually were if you were to look at it logically. Yeah. But the second thing I read I enjoyed way more and it was Queen of Volts by Amanda Foody. This is the third and final book in the Shadow Game series. And I rated it 3.75 stars, and I don't know how to describe it without giving away stuff from the first, but it's got gangsters, it's got a seedy underbelly to a city, it's got political machinations, it's got a lot. There's a secret family history, if you're looking for that sort of intrigue, and like cars and guns and knives and casinos burning. So, so why am I not reading this series next? It sounds like right up my alley. Well, I mean, there's also a romance in there and I don't think you would like the romance. But... So I'll skip the gushy parts and keep on moving to the gangsters. You're definitely going to miss a lot of plot if you skip the gushy parts, but all right. That's sad. But it was really good. I enjoyed this series. Maybe you would enjoy it more than I think you would, but the lowest rating that these books have gotten is the one that I just read because I felt like the ending was just a lot to pack into 600 pages. I think it could have easily have been expanded another 200 pages and felt more comfortable with it because the whole time it's just go, go, go. And, like, it's solving stuff from the first two books and getting resolution, but then it's also doing other things and getting those started and having to resolve them in the same book. It's a lot. Yeah. It was a pretty chunky-looking book. Yeah. It was 600 pages, which is a tome for sure. I think it should have been a longer tome to have made everything make sense and not feel, like, emotionally exhausted at the end. And then I also read the first ten stories from the... Empire Strikes Back from a Certain Point of View anthology, which is written by various authors. It's 40 books from side characters from the movie The Empire Strikes Back in the Star Wars series. And what I've read so far has seemed to mostly center around Hoth at this point, so we haven't gotten off Hoth at this point. But I'm enjoying it. At this point, I've rated each story and averaged it out, and right now it's averaging 3.23 stars. And that doesn't sound great, but considering the various authors and various styles and like that sort of thing and what the stories are all about, I think that's actually a good rating. And my favorite stories were from Kristen White and her story Eyes of the Empire and from R.F. Kuang Against All Odds. And Eyes of the Empire is about a girl who built droids to go explore these different worlds to try to see where the resistance is. Yeah. And so through her basically computer, she's getting to see all these different worlds and locations through the droids. That's pretty cool. So she's like scouting out uh, other planets for them to go to. Well, to see where the resistance is. Yeah. 
I thought that was cool and it talked a lot about wanting to escape from where she was and having to do it through these droids and all this other stuff. And then Against All Odds by R.F. Kuang was a lot more emotional of a story and it was about war and loss and like how war impacts everyone and not just the people who are fighting in it and all this other stuff. And it made me emotional, which was a lot for a 10-page story. But R.F. Kuang is also the guy who has written the Poppy War and that series. And that is all about war and loss and sacrifice and everything. So I'm not surprised that's the kind of story he told. And for what I'm reading next, I'm going to read another Christmas story. That'll be my first read of the week, and it's going to be His Christmas Miracle by Danny Collins. It's a backlist from 2016. It's a free book I picked up throughout the year to read at Christmas time. It's about this single father who is trying to figure out life without his ex and how to be this parent while still trying to, like, live his life. Yeah. And he hires a babysitter who tries to bring him into his child's world and like trying to make him experience Christmas through the child's eyes. So it's supposed to be cute. It's pretty short, less than 300 pages. Well, that'll be good after the chunker you've been reading. Yeah. Yeah. And then the next book after that is going to make me emotional. It is the last book in the An Ember in the Ashes series by Saba Tahir. It is A Sky Beyond the Storm. Yeah. It's a new release, just came out on the first. This is a desert fantasy series about a girl whose brother was working for the rebellion and he gets caught. So she works to become a spy for the rebellion to save him. And everything goes haywire, multiple people are getting stabbed in the back, and a lot of bad things are happening, and good things are happening, and it's a very emotional series for me. And I'm nervous. The third <laughs> one doesn't end well, so I'm very nervous about how this one's gonna go. Gotcha. It's the last one in the series, I feel like. A lot of people aren't gonna make it. Yeah, that's usually what happens in the end of a book like that. Yeah, we shall see. And then I'm going to read more stories from the Star Wars book that I've been reading. Probably about 10. Sounds good. Like, I, I feel like I would enjoy that book for the short stories just because I am such a Star Wars nerd. And I am not to the point where, like, I watched all the cartoon series and things like that, which probably takes me out of some of the categories of calling myself a Star Wars nerd. But, like, I've played every Battlefront game. I've unlocked all the hidden things in the Battlefront games because... I love things like that. I think if you've seen the movies, you can call yourself a Star Wars nerd. Like, I'm not that kind of, like, gatekeeper. Yeah, by no means am I gonna, like, go enter a Star Wars trivia contest. I know that I will not win those. Yeah, no. I haven't even seen all of the movies. So, like, this is the episode where we discuss how... I would lose to all the gatekeepers out there for all the things because I can enjoy things without having to do a deep dive in them, in my opinion. And that's but. kind of my belief with it as well. Like, there's probably things that we would understand better if we did follow through all those things. But at the same time, it's just like, these are meant to be separate side stories, so they shouldn't be that complicated for people that are just fans of the movies to understand either. Right. If you've seen The Empire Strikes Back, you can mostly follow everything in from a certain point of view. There is 
some stuff that I think is a little hazier just from the stories I've read so far. But that doesn't take away from the stories necessarily. Right. And like some of the stories like interconnect. So like in the 10 stories I've read, you have three that are happening basically at the same time, just at different parts of the base on Hoth. So like you have the same major events happening, but you have three different side characters. So a bunch of different things are happening at the same time. Yeah, go figure that they're not all doing the same thing at the same time. Because, like, there's a lot of things that needed to happen all around that time on both ends of the battlefield, let's be honest. Yeah, and you do get both sides of the story, kind of. You've gotten, I think, two or three stories so far about the Empire and that side. But you also have mostly stories from the Rebellion. So far, it's good. I believe they already have one of these anthologies for A New Hope. Okay. So I really should have read that first. Yeah. But this was the first one that I saw. And it also had authors I enjoy, like Hank Green, Martha Wells, S.A. Chakraborty, Kirsten White, R.F. Kwong. Like, it's chock full of authors whose names I've recognized, whose works I've read. So, yeah. But I've been talking for a long time. How about you talk now? Do I have to? (laughs) Um, Because we're going to discuss the fact that you finally finished the Harry Potter series. I am so proud of you. Yeah, it only took five hours, but... um, It took seven months. That's appropriate, I feel like, for someone reading it the first time. And also juggling a a full-time job. job. Yeah, that sometimes pours over into my normal life. But last week we left you off notes-wise where I finished up in chapter 23 due to the fact that there are things that go on in the movie within like 30 seconds of the ending that require me to have read chapter 24. I made you read chapter I read 24. it before we talked about the movie. It was weird for me writing these notes because I'm like, I feel like we already talked about this because we did in the movie notes. Yeah, we kind um, of did. We talked about how... Dobby's funeral and all that stuff. And, and we discussed the part where Voldemort's the one who gets the wand. And then we stuff. also discussed the fact that they left out the interrogations of Griphook and Ollivander. Yeah. But I think those are important foundational pieces for the rest of the story. And it frustrates me that they just jumped straight to Voldemort getting to the wand. And they take away some of the importance of him doing that. Yeah. So basically at that point when he's doing the interrogations, Harry doesn't know that Voldemort has the wand. He just knows that he's starting to put the pieces together and figure out where it is more or less. Well, and at that point he doesn't have it yet. He doesn't get it until they're leaving the interrogation. Yeah. So interrogation wise with Griphook, it's very much Harry trying to continue to gain trust with Griphook and earn him kind of as an ally in the sense of trying to raid Gringotts. So which is a suicide mission, let's be honest. Yeah, some people probably died. We won't go into the details of that yet because we're not there. I'm just um, saying, it's a big thing to try to make happen. Right. Uh, so much so that Hagrid was like, it's impossible to break into Green Gods. And then that happened, obviously. So it was not, like, impossible. Right. Those scenes were kind of weird. Like, I understand the importance of him because it kind of helps Harry make the decision. And then, obviously, after the interviews, he goes, well... Now the decision is clear as day. We have to go after the Horcruxes. Well, and he made that decision when he decided who to talk to. First, yeah. He definitely put the priority on the Horcruxes when he interviewed Griphook instead of Ollivander first, so... But basically, after the first interrogation, Griphook's like, "Ah, I'll consider it because I've noticed your kindness to other than wizards, creatures, you know, like, you actually care about people outside of just 
other wizards. Mostly seen with like the burial of Dobby and putting the headstone in and giving his jacket to Dobby as he's, you know, passed away and all that stuff when he's buried. So yeah, it's just a lot of trust building really in that first interrogation. And at that point when he's leaving, he kind of explains to Ron and Hermione why he has plans to break into Gringotts because he didn't really loop them into the decision until after the interrogation. Like he was talking about it and they were both like, what? And he kind of explained why. And he's pretty certain that one of the Horcruxes is in Bellatrix's vault just based on the way she reacted when the sword of Gryffindor was right in front of them. So he's piecing everything together very quickly for them, which I feel like sometimes Ron needs Hermione probably not so much. Like if you had just told him, like, you remember, if he just told Hermione that, Hermione would have been smart enough, I think, to put the pieces together. But then Harry starts to really learn a lot about wand lore with the Ollivander interrogation. I think that's the biggest takeaway from that interview with Ollivander is he really starts to understand like why Draco's wand is working better for him than the previous one. He really breaks it down for him as to how wands work. And like most wizards at this point just think of a wand as the pointy thing you use to make things happen. And they're not seeing it as not necessarily a creature or being or anything that has its own like thought, but it's more like something not necessarily to use but to entrust someone with and that they have their own sort of like characteristics outside of their physical characteristics yeah it it was definitely probably really interesting well probably it was very interesting for me to read that portion of it it still seemed like more filler but it was important because as you learn at the end like he's able to really break it down barney style per se for voldemort towards the end of the book and we won't go into that yet because we're not there but it's definitely important for harry to learn that stuff i think and it's something that i'm under the impression they leave out in the movie i'm not 100 percent certain because i haven't seen the second movie yet but like i don't know if they completely cut out those interviews or we'll discuss just... it next week yeah i enjoyed it like it was educational and i feel like it gave me an opportunity to have conversations with you about things that i don't normally really understand or grasp yeah which was fun i really like wand lore like you don't if, say if i could get a degree in wand lore i would yes we went to the wand lore lecture at leaky con last year yeah Boy, I felt stupid inside that room. Now I'm starting to understand things a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I still don't grasp it nearly as deep as some of the people that were in that that room, to say the least. Well, and there's a lot of stuff on her website or that was on Pottermore and stuff like that that went even further into depth than Mr. Ollivander did. I love the books. I'm never reading any of that. Like my literature professor said is that it doesn't matter what you say outside the book it has to be on the page so like anything she said about her series since the books have come out doesn't matter and after those interviews harry gets one of his flashes into voldemort's perspective and he sees voldemort arriving at the grave of dumbledore and him more or less taking the elder wand from him after blasting his gravestone open or his his tomb open yeah Uh, and that's how that ends and that's why we watched the movie and read this chapter previously yeah because you would have been real shocked if you hadn't read that chapter i don't know that i would have been you wouldn't have known i feel like there's a a lot of stuff that was left out of the movie so like i would have been like yeah that was bound to happen because again like 
as long as Harry Potter's been out, there's a lot of things that have been spoiled for me already. One of which is the Elder Wand. Like, I kind of already knew of its existence. I just didn't know its background story, I think, more so yeah. than anything. I knew that Voldemort already ended up with it. So, like, that whole thing wasn't a shock for me by any means. And it's not like I went searching on the internet for it. Like, it's just kind of there. Hard to avoid, I guess. But in the next chapter, Griphook asks for a meeting with Harry, Ron, and Hermione. He has some stipulations to his assistants, which is that basically Harry turned over the Sword of Gryffindor because it belongs with goblins because it was created by goblins. And we get kind of a little bit more definition of that with the conversation between Harry and Bill later in that chapter. Um, Harry's like... When it's too late and he's committed already. Yeah, Harry's like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, that's fine. We'll give it to you. And just doesn't really emphasize when he plans on giving it to him. So yeah, that's, that's a weird thing that happened. And like Hermione's all pissed off because it's like, you can't make a play on word commitment with a goblin. And she's like, you're being stupid. And I don't think she truly understands like the same level that like Bill does. But she's still kind of like eerie, like you can't treat people like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I kind of saw this moment as like the angel and the devil on Harry's shoulders because you had Ron going like, it's fine. Play this dude like he deserves it. Like, yeah, yeah. He's a goblin, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, whoa, bro. Well, you have to realize Ron was raised with prejudices that Harry and Hermione weren't because she didn't know these things were real. Well, and they grew up in the magic world, like, from childhood. It was always around him. So, yeah, I can kind of understand that. And then Hermione, on their hands, like, the queen of the house elves supports all non-magical, like, all magical creatures and their rights and, like, all these things. So, I'm not shocked that that was the way that scene was but i really enjoyed the way that that one was written i think more so than some of the other stuff in this book so and it's kind of weird for me to pick that out i guess probably but as like a favorite scene but i i actually enjoyed it a lot i think it makes sense and then bill kind of really breaks it down for harry as to like what goblins see as ownership versus like wizards buying things they really only see it as the person buying the item from the goblins owns it for one lifetime and then basically turns it back over to whoever the goblin was that created it where obviously as humans and wizards you buy a good and you own it yeah yeah. that's just the way it is like renting and owning are different yeah like they're kind of more or less leasing it from the goblins is the way the goblins see it it's yours for now because you paid for it but at the end of this period of time it should be due back to us and needless to say like the sword's been around a while and not been passed back and then the next chapter you have the gringotts break in which oof So it starts off with Hermione and Ron, well, Hermione becoming Bellatrix and Ron basically having his face jacked up via magic. He becomes Dragomir. (laughs) I forgot his name, so I'm glad you filled that in. Um, I knew it was something really stupid sounding. Right? It seems so obvious. and And it was clearly something that, like, Hermione was just, like, came up off the top of her head. But they run into Travers in Diagon Alley. But in my notes, I really made it specific to me that Diagon Alley is in rough shape. There's beggars coming out of Nocturne Alley and everything's boarded up for the most part now and very few people wandering around out of just pure concern that they're going to get murdered. It's really a weird time. But Travers also needs to go to Gringotts. That's why he's also there. But he's kind of on the defensive because he knows that Bellatrix is supposed to be more or less under lock and key. And he's like, how are you here? I think Hermione kind of plays the Bellatrix character pretty well, considering. I mean, she definitely has some screw-ups. Well, without a doubt. But, like, at the same time, she's kind of cocky and demanding and 
authoritative, I guess, a little bit to Travers. And in turn, Travers is like, oh, okay. But it's a weird scene, to say the least. As they're they're getting into Gringotts, they notice that there's two people with probity probes. I thought the naming of that was very poorly worded. I guess, like, I feel like she could have been more creative with another name for it. Like, probity probes. I think the name for these were created in a moment where she wanted silliness and not, like, drama and, like, seriousness. I don't know, because it's a pretty serious scene. Like, I guess she's trying to lighten the mood a little bit. Well, also, probity probes have been mentioned before now. Yeah, they were used when people were trying to bring things into the castle that were, like, dark objects of magic, right, at one point. Right. Basically, Harry confunds the guards to thinking that, more or less, that they've already scanned everybody in order to get Hermione by and Ron by and them by. Travers is kind of, like, on edge now because he's like, I don't remember seeing them do that. So, like, how did they, they already, what? Like, he's just kind of on edge, I guess, a little bit from seeing what actually went down at that entrance. The way I saw that part was that he had already been done. Yeah, he had. And so he was just waiting for them and, like, looking the other way. Yeah. Not that he actually noticed anything. Yeah. And that he might have been more on edge, but more so from the guards and how they were acting and less from Bellatrix. Right. But it gets more interesting, I guess, overall very quickly because you have Harry having to use a lot of spells in a very short amount of time to even get them to the tram via like the customer service desk to try to go to the actual vault itself for Bellatrix. Yeah, and they're dark spells and ones you would not assume that Hero would use, but of course he kind of has to. Yeah, I feel like this is really where it turns to where desperation is necessary for it, more so than anything. Like, yeah. he uses the Imperious Curse twice, pretty much back to back, once on one of the goblins and then turns it on Travers there shortly after. That's the way they get into the vault area, firstly. Uh, as they're going down into the vault, deeper and deeper, a random waterfall appears, which removes all magic that would like any form of concealment any form of concealments yeah yeah it's the thieves downfall i think is what it's called yeah and grip hooks like they know we're here uh that's the only reason this exists that wasn't so great my thing is the part that comes right after this gets under my skin and it's where they're tricking the dragon that is like lost some of its hue and it's blind and like it's been buried in this cave, yeah. And, like, the treatment of this dragon for so long has been so horrible that they come to expect pain and, like, they shrink back in fear. And it's like, PETA would have a problem with you people. Yeah, uh, the clinkers is what the goblins normally carry to right. push them back. It's just to make noise to scare them. Yeah, and since he's more or less, the dragon's more or less blind, it kind of helps the cause in that instance. And then I, I notated when they get into the vault, the vault defenses are very creative and scary at the same time because, like, I have a fear of drowning so like you don't want to drown in gold and be burned at the same time like it's a pretty impressive curse yeah on the well, stuff they're one of the richest families so like of course they have this sort of protection yeah the dilemma is does it ever go back to normal like is it like a timed thing like after so many hours it becomes the normal pile again i assume that it is something that the goblin would have to do a spell or to stop. their own magic or whatever to make it stop. Or the people who actually own whatever's in the vault would have to do this spell. Right. They eventually do find the cup or goblet. Because the chalice. Cup, chalice. Do any of those words, roughly the right ones, maybe. But they end up 
having Hermione, while in pain and being burned, levitate Harry up to the actual shelf that it's on to get it. And in the process of that, she ends up dropping them, but he gets it with, like, hooks it with the sword, basically. And then when he falls back down into the piles of coins, he realizes that Griphook is drowning. And so he lets go of the sword in order to grab him and then also pulls the chalice in while the sword goes sliding away because he's trying to pick up Griphook from drowning, basically. And Griphook immediately takes the sword. Backstabs all of them. Yeah. It's like, hey, bro, I just saved you, but you're going to steal it from me now? I mean, you were going to stab him in the back, too. So, like, yeah, you don't have a leg to stand on here. Yeah. And then Griphook comes basically running out of the vault like, they, they're they the thieves, they're the thieves. And I'm like, bro, you're literally holding onto a thing that they thought they had in that vault. So, like, you're also a thief. But yeah. because he's a goblin, the other goblins are like... They all trust him. Yeah. yeah. And so Harry has to use a spell to free the dragon to basically push back the goblins. And quick thinking on his feet, he jumps onto the back of the dragon. And the dragon is basically like their super exit that they clearly were not prepared to have to make but the dragon helps them escape while screwing everybody over in its path but that kind of wraps up that chapter and 27 is very it seemed like there wasn't really a whole lot going on in that chapter it sets you up for a couple things really quick and that's about it they're obviously riding the dragon for a really long time well if they're going from london to roughly edinburgh yeah and they jump out into a lake when the dragon is very low to the lake, which is kind of weird. But again, I guess you got to escape somewhere. So. I mean, I don't know any other option than yeah. getting off. Yeah, at a lake, no less, too. At a safe height to jump into a lake. The way the movie does it makes it look less weird because the dragon's going to get some water from the lake. So that's why it's going down so far. Yeah, but while they're getting settled in on the, the beach into the forested area, kind of like to keep themselves safe, from visibility, Harry has another one of his flashes into Voldemort's perspective again. This time he sees Voldemort questioning the goblins and the security wizards that were there, like the wizards that were Death Eaters that were there. In response, nobody can really give him an answer beyond the fact that they know Harry took the one thing that he's trying to protect there. And so he starts killing everybody because. Well, no why one's not? supposed to know about this, yeah. and all of these people know about this. So yeah. his only response is to kill anyone who knows. Yeah. Some people get away only because they're, they were already trying to get away when Voldemort arrived, and that's their only safe situation in that instance. But at that point, Harry kind of realizes that Voldemort may know that Harry knows about his horror. Cruxes. So he knows that he knows that he knows. About he knows the about the he knows and he knows. Yeah, it's kind of a mess, but yeah, that's how it all. Basically, breaks Harry finds out that Voldemort is on to his plan to take all the Horcruxes and, and destroy, destroy them. them. Yeah, and Harry explains everything that he's basically seeing to Ron and Hermione, including the fact that he knows that Voldemort is still hiding one piece in Hogwarts because he, he admits that in The Flash, but he doesn't tell them where it is or what it is. Right. They kind of realize, though, at this point that it's one related to the Ravenclaw house just because they have the chalice from Hufflepuff. And they already destroyed Slytherins and... Gryffindor hasn't really been an option the whole time because yeah. of Voldemort being a Slytherin. And then took out the journal and the resurrection stone. But Harry basically explains like, guys, I know we want to rest, but we got to book it. 
like right we, now. We gotta go to Hogsmeade so that we can get to Hogwarts. To hopefully get to the Horcrux before Voldemort gets Comes there back. to get it. Yeah, to realize that the other ones are being destroyed. They apparate into Hogsmeade, and boy, is that a fun scene. Because everything goes to hell in a handbasket in an instant. They put some type of, like, security alarm charm. They where... set off the caterwauling charm. Yeah, I forgot the exact name, but I knew that it was more or less like a security alarm. Basically, they opened the security door to And all the alarms the went off at all once. All the alarms went off at once, yeah. And conveniently, though, they were already covered in the invisibility cloak, so, like, it wasn't as dire of a situation as it could have been it could have been much worse because a bunch of death eaters come out of the three broomsticks to try to find what's setting it off and they're like we know you're out here harry we know you're out here blah 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 blah. like they're looking around for them and they're just basically trying to find a safe way to get to hogwarts even though at this point they're just like they realize there's no way we're getting there so we gotta look for just a safe place period well, first they tried to apparate away and they couldn't because yeah. of the wards that were yeah. put on. Yeah, but as they're running to hide, the Dementors get requested into the town because they know that it would force them to use a Patronus, which would leave them vulnerable. So Harry uses his Patronus to push the Dementors back and that draws attention to the roughly the area that they're in. When the Death Eaters are starting to close in on them, they hear like a whisper from behind them, like, come in here real quick and they realize that they're in front of uh the hog's head so they just listen they're like well if we have a friend we've got a friend like we need to take advantage of this opportunity right now and the innkeeper basically well the barkeep is who it is they recognize him as the barkeep at that point ends up like claiming that it was his patronus and it was a goat it wasn't a stag and like how could you mix that up you idiots He's like, yeah, I just came out, what was it, for like fresh air or something like that? Or let, it was to let to something let out. To let the cat out. To let the cat out. Like, you guys are freaking out about nothing. Like, you need to all just relax and call it a night. They start threatening him, and he's like, listen, the amount of dark trade that I let go through this bar is ridiculous. Like, if you guys take me out, you lose all those connections. And so they just leave him be, basically, at that point. He comes up to the room that he put them in, and Harry recognizes his blue eyes. This whole time he thought it was Dumbledore somehow reaching out to him from beyond the grave. And so the connection starts to kind of line up that that must be Aberforth. Which, honestly, I think was the most, like, the most mind-blowing thing for me. Like, the Snape thing was interesting, but, like, the Aberforth thing was like, wow, I'm an idiot. How did I not put all this together for the longest right. time? You didn't have enough puzzle pieces to put that together. You had some pieces, though. Like, you had Albus at one point, like, going, maybe that wasn't the best place to host your meetings, you know, when it was related to the Dumbledore's army stuff. So, like, he kind of got clues that somebody in the inn told him that those things were going on. I mean, you could say that there were hints that he had some connection to whoever runs Hogshead because he also makes remarks about knowing the innkeeper there and also made remarks about how he got information for things that happened there. So, like, it's not a stretch to say they knew each other. I think it might be a stretch to say that it was his brother because right. there hasn't been enough of a physical description of Aberforth at that point. There hasn't. That's right. To know. Yeah. But you really start to learn, like, prospectively a little more accurate information than what you know about the Dumbledore family from Aberforth. Like, he goes on an absolute tangent, which 
is really interesting. Like, you learn why Ariana was in the situation she was in because she was being bullied by two muggles. And three muggles. Three muggles? Yep. Either way, she's being tortured by muggles and bullied. Because she accidentally did magic when she was seven, which is the usual time magic first appears. Right. And then he really kind of goes into more in depth with the relationships he had with Ariana versus Dumbledore having, like, or Albus having a relationship with Ariana and how the relationship with Grindelwald really affected Ariana's, like, stability and the fact that she tried to step in between Grindelwald and Albus fighting with each other and that's how she ended up dying because the two of them were just at each other's throats. Well, and they don't ever really know who killed her. And so it could have been her magic turning on herself. It could have been Grindelwald. It could have been Dumbledore. It could have been the other Dumbledore. No one really knows. Yeah, it's a pretty big mess, to say the least. However, one of the things that Aberforth made very clear was, because it was put into question, I don't know if it was Ron or Harry, but one of them called him out for abandoning the Order of the Phoenix. And he goes, listen... I've been on board with it the entire time. Just because I haven't been present doesn't mean that I've been, or I haven't been irrelevant to the fight, basically. Mm -hmm. He basically states that the mission that Albus is putting Harry on is a suicide mission and that he really needs to look out for himself instead of, like, caring about everybody else in this instance. And, like, he goes, don't get me wrong. He goes, I want to take Voldemort out. But at the same time, you're just a kid. What are you going to do? He also brought up the fact that Dumbledore was very secretive. And I feel like that's something you see throughout the story, but you don't necessarily notice it. Yeah, you don't the way connect you do in the this dots book. quite the way you do until now. Yeah. They end up persuading him to let them continue to do what they're going to do. Like, the mission is the mission. We're going to do it. Like, I've trusted Dumbledore so far. I'm going to continue to trust him. Like, nothing you're going to say is going to change that. Aberforth's like, okay, cool. That's fine. Like, it was almost like a test of will, I think, like he was putting him through, which it I felt a little I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it's more along the lines of, look, you need to take care of yourself. And then he realized he can't make him take care of himself. So he's like, you know what? Fine. Here's how you get to Hogwarts. Get the F off my porch or, you know, out well, of my end. He didn't, like, directly tell him, though, either. He asked the the painting of Ariana to go right. get... Neville. He didn't say Neville at first, but yeah, Neville's who comes. I think it's really weird that, like, it's the two of them walking back in the painting. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's a little creepy magic stuff. And then all of a sudden, like, the painting opens up and, like, ta-da, there's Neville all scarred up and stuff like that. Neville, at that point, basically plays catch-up. Like, he's asking about, oh, is the thing about the dragon true? Like, blah, 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 like, super over the moon, right? Harry's like, yeah, it was real. That was a thing that happened. And they've been playing catch-up as to kind of what's going on. Neville kind of explains what's been going down inside the school and... How Defense Against the Dark Arts has basically just become dark arts class. And we're not talking arts and crafts, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking, like, bad, bad magic. I'm sure you're all on board, but, you know, just in case. And he explains how he's basically earned the scars, like how he got them um, by standing up to the Karos to more or less create hope for the other students because, like, it was dwindling. And he said to the point where, like, people were starting to kind of revolt and push back a little bit. Then they started going after, like, family members and so on and so forth. And they eventually connected the dots that, like, who my grandmother was. So they went after my grandmother. And then my grandmother put one of the Death Eaters in uh, St. Mungo's. And then she escaped. And I was like, ooh, Grandma! 
like go granny i was super excited i think i actually pulled you away from your book to tell you about that when i read that scene i was like dang you know like grandma still got it i don't know why i doubted her but like i feel like there was a lot of scenes in this book where it was just like wow the level of magic that some of these people do that we just don't think would be able to do those things is just like crazy good and we'll get more on that here in a little bit Either way, though, they start making their way back to Hogwarts at that point. And once they get back there, there's like a whole group of students in the room of requirement, which is where they end up on the other end of the tunnel. And they're all hyped up like the war is coming. Like, this is it. This is where we start the revolution and we take back Hogwarts. And Harry's like, uh, guys, that's not why I'm here. Yeah. Sorry. I'm here to find one thing for a mission that Dumbledore gave me. That I can't tell any of you about. That I can't about. tell any of you about. And... It's related to Ravenclaw House. And so who knows of this like item that would be important to Rowena Ravenclaw that I need to find is... Like he was very... Just enough information to help, but not enough to have them really like help. He learned secrets from Dumbledore. Yeah. What I think is funny is like the whole time he's trying to have this conversation is more and more people are just flooding in from Aberforth and... Yeah. And so he's got to keep stopping and starting. And then at one point, Cho offers to take him to go find it. And Jenny's like, you know what? How about Luna does that instead? Because she yeah. is also from your house and they have not dated. Yeah. Which I thought was funny. Uh, she had a little bit of a, a jealous moment of like, ah, no. But so Luna takes, basically volunteers at that point. Like, yeah, I'll do it. We'll go down there. And I'm she's basically telling him like she's pretty sure about what the item is. That it could be possibly the crown that... Uh, Rowena wears in the statue. So, the diadem. Yeah, the diadem. So when they get there, the first thing Harry does is start trying to climb up the statue to like grab it, thinking maybe that's like that it, it was that easy or to get a better look at it. Well, you're completely ignoring the most fascinating part of this, which is how you get into Ravenclaw House because it's an eagle head knocker. So you knock on the door and the eagle asks you a question and if you can't answer it correctly you, you don't get in you don't get in you have to wait for someone to come so they could answer it correctly or for somebody for to come out yeah yeah and i love that that's amazing and like it doesn't necessarily have to be a hundred percent correct it has to be like well thought out and have like support like it might be a riddle that has multiple answers but as long as you can back your answer you can get in well the question is pretty much chicken or the egg question more or less but like the, the phoenix flame or, or the, the flame. flame yeah it's like circles never begin is what more or less what luna answers right like something a circle has no beginning has no beginning yeah that's why they let them in and then harry climbs the statue I don't remember him climbing anything, but he does try to get a closer look at the diadem when and someone... in the process of being grabbed by Electo Caro. And she immediately touches her forearm to summon Voldemort after she's secured Harry. And then you start the next chapter with Luna stunning Electo. I like that part. Well, of course you do. <laughs> you like Luna. And Luna being awesome is always something you enjoy i was going to use a different word but we are on the podcast after all so basically that stunning spell wakes up the entire ravenclaw house so everybody's starting to come down the stairs so basically luna comes over grabs harry and throws the cloak back over the two of them like we need to disappear right now more or less the ravenclaw house comes down and just starts celebrating because they're like it's kind of like a wicked witch is dead moment they're very excited and then they hear Amicus banging on the door with the knocker trying to get into the house. So the rest of the students go back up to their rooms because they don't want to be like visible when they come in because they don't want to be blamed for all that stuff. 
And Amicus is just like getting more and more irate because he can't figure out the question. And so eventually at a certain point, Professor McGonagall shows up and goes, what is going on down here? Like you're making all this racket. Like, what are you doing? She's able to answer the question to get them in. Again, another question that like, if you were just confidently answer it in a certain way, you probably would get let in. Um, I forget the exact question, but. Where do vanished objects go? Yeah. She said nowhere, which means into everything. Yeah. But. Amicus wants to place the blame on summoning Voldemort on the Ravenclaw students because obviously he can't see Harry, so like it must have been an accident, not on purpose by any means. And McGonagall's like, I'm not going to have any of that. You're not blaming students and sacrificing them because your sister is incompetent. Yeah. And in return, Amicus starts going off and then spits in McGonagall's face. And Harry's like, well, that's the last straw. Literally throws off the invisible cloak from himself and uses the Cruciatus curse on amicus which it was like again using, using those spells you're not supposed to use yeah at the same time it was like kind of had it coming and i don't know if that's me just like always supporting bad things happening to bad people in that instance but like i i support that a little bit well also this is like a mother hen figure that has tried to support harry throughout his whole hogwarts career and so anything disrespectful happening to her is gonna get punished but anyways after he uses the cruciatus curse mcgonagall's like i got this wrapped him up in a giant uh, rope style baggy i guess is the way i can describe it i don't know like netting netting yeah that's what i thought Wedding, of. like just wraps him up put it this way and hangs him from the ceiling which it's like well Harry informs McGonagall why he's basically back at Hogwarts because she's like, what are you doing here? You gotta go. Like, you need to leave and you need to leave and it needs to be like right now. So he starts breaking it down like, no, I'm actually here to look for something. Like, I can't leave yet. I need to find it before we do anything. And so McGonagall's like, all right, I will get the other professors and the heads of the houses up and prepared to basically defend Hogwarts. Yeah, while getting the younger children out. Yeah. She sends her Patronuses out to deliver the messages to the other teachers and heads of the houses to get everybody to the Great Hall, basically. And while they're on their way there, they run into Snape. And Snape starts being a, you know, cocky piece of you-know-what. Like, what are you doing down here, McGonagall? Like, it's not your night for guard duty. And she's like, well, I heard a, a ton of noise. I assume that's why you're coming down here as well. Or is it because of... And, like, she points at his arm, you know, the mark coming to exist and... Then the duel begins. It's a really interesting fight because, like, they're using sheaths of armor, like... Suits of armor. Suits of armor to fight and, like, all sorts of just craziness. Harry and Luna the whole time are just underneath the uh, invisibility cloak, avoiding all these spells that are being shot all over the place. And it looks like a pretty even fight up until the point where Professor Sprout and Flitwick arrive. And then Snape flees and turns into a bat and flies away. He escapes as a bat. They start basically gathering up all these students in the Great Hall and explain what's going on. And Harry is still there with her at that point in the Great Hall. Voldemort uh, uses some form of magic to where, like, he has a megaphone in the shape of Hogwarts. He's basically broadcasting his voice all over Hogwarts, Hogsmeade, and the surrounding area. Yeah, which is, I feel like, some pretty crazy magic. Well, I mean, he made Horcruxes. Are you really surprised? Not really. And... At that point, the Slytherin house is like, well, this is really easy to get out of. All we have to do is turn over Harry. Yeah. Like, it's not that complicated. A lot of people really don't like she who shall not be named's 
treatment of the Slytherins in this scene because in this scene all the Slytherins just want to give up Harry and stay safe whereas people are more diverse than that and someone would have more free thought than to just throw Harry to the The wolves wolves. so it's also painting them all with the same brush and I don't know that that's fair for any Hogwarts house yeah um, but I love the fact that all three houses just, like, get up and, like, 360 surround Harry. Like, what you gonna do? What you gonna do, Slytherin? So, at that point, McGonagall's like, Slughorn, take all of your students and get them out of here. We cannot trust a single one of them. Yeah. Like, they need to get got gone. And so, they all end up leaving in that instance. At that point, McGonagall's like, you're here for something, right? Get to it. And starts telling the other professors, and at that point, some of the members of Dumbledore's army to start setting up these securities and safety nets well at really... that point the order of the phoenix had arrived they actually hadn't quite yet but because in my notes i have it as harry finds his way back to the room requirement to find that the order of the phoenix had arrived with the remaining group of the weasley family including percy weasley which was the most shocking thing you cried i did when you read this i was over the moon that percy finally stopped being an a-hole yeah. Um, but obviously at that point you had Tonks and Lupin also there. And Tonks and Lupin were like showing off baby photos of their little babish. Um, which I skipped and I'm sorry I did earlier because like we, we know Harry is the godfather for Ted. Yeah. I hope they show pictures of Ted in the movie. If they don't, I'm be upset. Yeah. But knowing how much they've included Lupin and Tonks in the movie probably isn't going to happen. I'm not going to get my hopes up. If they'll even be there. But Ginny tells Harry at that point that Ron and Hermione left to find something in a bathroom. And so Harry is like, all right, I'm off. I'm going to go start looking for them. When he has a vision from Voldemort's perspective of Voldemort arriving at the gates of the school with Nagini across his shoulders. Or Nagini. Nagini. These pronunciations are going to screw me up. And I apologize for the people that really know the names of all these people. I called Ginny Guinea for like a year. I didn't make that mistake. So... Yeah. I was um, also 10 years old, so. No excuses. So Harry's not going to find Ron and Hermione. He's, he's just going, going back to search. He's going to find someone who can tell him more about the diadem. Yeah, in which case he runs into nearly headless Nick. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And he's, he's... directing Harry to the Grey Lady, right. which is the ghost of Ravenclaw. Which ends up being, as we find out through heavy questioning from Harry, the daughter of Rowena Ravenclaw. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, I stole it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, that is so childish. But I understand because, like, you have to live up to your mom's standards and that's pretty high standards. Yeah, that's hard. And through questioning and questioning, she admits to having it last in Albania uh, where she ran away with it and she ended up being hunted down by the Bloody Baron on her mother's request because the Bloody Baron loved Rowena's daughter. The Grey Lady. Helena Ravenclaw. Helena. 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 Pronunciation in question. But anyways, the Grey Lady. We'll just keep using that term. Easier said than done. So the Bloody Baron finds her and she declines coming back. So the Bloody Baron kills her in a rage. And then after killing her, realizes like, I just killed the person I love and then kills himself. So a little murder-suicide, you know, no big deal. Later on, 
he's still questioning her, trying to figure out, like, if she's told anybody else that that's where it was, where she left it. She goes, oh, there was this young gentleman that was so nice to me one time uh, by the name of Tom Riddle, who I told the story because he was so nice to me and blah, 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 blah. He understood me. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and in the process of that, like, it all starts to kind of click for Harry. Like, he had to have gone and found it after he wasn't a student anymore because that's the only time he would have had time to go all the way to Albania. Yeah. Secondly, he had to have hidden it when he was trying to ask Dumbledore for another job. To ask Dumbledore for a job, I guess, not another job. The job. Yet again, asking to work at Hogwarts. Right. He had to have hidden it at that point. And at that point, the only thing that would have worked would have been the room of requirement that he knew he knew about already. And the room where people hid things. It's very hard to keep up with all the different rooms that the room of requirement has. Because I feel like there's a lot more than they lead on well, to. But like, it can be anything for anybody. But, but that's probably the most commonly it is, used. It is a well-used room. The room of lost things. Yeah. But on the way there, Harry runs into Hagrid, Fang, and Grop because they are basically being thrown in through the window by Grop. Like, I heard things were going down. I could hear uh, Voldemort's voice all the way up in the mountains. And so, like, I came immediately to help. He, at this point, is really trying to get to the room of requirement and make sure that everybody's already gotten in and evacuated before he goes to it. He knows that immediately that's where the diadem is because he's like, I've seen it in the room. I just don't remember where. So on the way back, he runs into Ron and Hermione, who went down into the Chamber of Secrets in order to collect fangs of the basilisk in order to have magic strong enough to destroy the remaining horcruxes. Smart. And Hermione took care of the Hufflepuff cup. Yep, it was the first Horcrux that she got to destroy, so, like, everybody's gotten a turn. They enter the room of requirement and start searching for the diadem. When Harry finally spots it, he doesn't realize that there's somebody other than Hermione and Ron in there with him. So, like, he hears somebody coming, so he's like, oh, guys, it's here. And then you have Crab Goyle and Draco there, like, uh, no, it's not the people you're looking for. It's the bad guys. And it's the first time you really see Crab and Goyle, like, revolting against what Draco is telling them to do on orders. So, like, it it gets ugly really fast. Harry slowly kind of, like, tries to back towards it to, like, get to it while they're all giving their spiels and anger towards one another. And it eventually gets ugly to the point where Crab and Goyle are adamant about trying to kill Harry instead of capturing him. And Crab ends up using a fire curse to try and kill Harry. Fiend fire. Yeah. It's worse than other types of fire they could have done because you can't really control this. It's a cursed fire. Yeah. And basically Harry's like, well, I got to get out of here. Like ASAP, you have Hermione and Ron try to like disrupt everything that's going on. And they realize they're all kind of on the run together. And they get backed up into a corner and they see some brooms. They're like, well, we know how to use these to escape the fire. And they're able to basically fly above the flames, right? Like the flames stay at a certain level is kind of the grasp I got from, uh, from it. So they're flying over the fire and they see Crab, Goyle, and Draco more or less cornered from it. They can't escape it. Ron's like, let's go, let's hightail it, let's get out of here. And Harry's like, well, A, we need to get the diadem. B, you know, we're not going to let these people die. You see the good side of Harry where it's just like, I hate these guys. They're monsters. But at the same time, they're human. They're wizards like us. We can't let them die. They go to save them, and in the process of the fire, Crab ends up dying from his own magic. So Goyle and Draco end up surviving, and at first, like, you kind of see Draco and Goyle trying to put the blame on Harry, and it's like, you guys are idiots. Like, there's no way 
you can blame them for that. It's not possible. They could not have done that to your your friend. But when they finally come to completely, they realize that the Death Eaters have more or less made entry into the castle. There are like all sorts of battles going on around them at that point. At a certain point, they realize that there's a battle going on right in front of them, and Fred ends up dying in that duel between them and some of the Death Eaters. Technically, there's a moment of reprieve in the battle that they stumble upon with Fred in it. Yeah. And Fred and Percy are joking with each other while the battle's happening, but then there's a moment where it seems like that whole fight is done. Yeah. And then part of the castle caves Caves in in and ends up killing Fred. Yeah. And I think that's what, like, shocked me the most the first time I read it, because you have this moment of lightheartedness and, like, brothers being brothers, and it's so sweet. And then instant dark as dark can be. And then he dies. Yeah. And it's like, are you effing kidding me? And I'm going to tell you this thing that I've been saving the whole time you've read this series. Yeah. Like, I want to tell you it, but you will not like me when I tell you this. So, do you remember when Molly was trying to deal with the Boggart in Grimwald Place in the fifth book? Yes. Because Mad-Eye was like, oh yeah, it's, it's a Boggart. Do you want me to take care of it? She's like, no, it's fine. I'll deal with it. You're eating. Whatever. She goes up there and she keeps seeing loved ones dead. Yeah. And it talks about Arthur and Harry and Percy, the twins. In her worst possible imaginings, she has absolutely never imagined that one of her two twins is going to end up dead. Yeah. They're always together. And then the worst of the worst happens in this book, and one twin dies. Yeah. That's just something I read about on the internet. Yeah. I don't know that that affects me nearly as much, I guess, but, like, I understand why it got to you. Well, I mean, Fred and George have always been Fred and George, and now it's just just George, George. and it's just absolutely heartbreaking for me because, like, I love them so much, but at the same time, like, you never saw them separated, and so for George, it's, I feel, even worse than, like, what his mother would be feeling at this point. Like, he lost, like, his other half, basically. And then Percy's, like, a wreck to the point where, like, he's just staying there and they're like, we gotta go, dude. Yeah. Like, we can't just stay here right now. The battle is ongoing. Yeah. Man. And then giant spiders start pouring into the building, which is great. Icky, no. Yeah. Gross. I'm really shocked that Ron didn't just, like, curl up into a ball and be like, well, this is it. Yeah. But he's come so far, so it's like, why would that stop him at that point? Plus, he can run and fight somewhere else. And at a certain point, they're finally escaped that chaos of a mess. And Harry ends up getting a flash again of Voldemort in the Shrieking Shack. And he's giving instructions to Lucius Malfoy to go fetch Snape. So immediately Harry's like, well, I know where I need to go now. Again, because he's trying to kill Nagini, the last Horcrux at that point, because the diadem had been destroyed by the cursed fire. Yeah. Go figure that a dark magic could destroy a dark magic item. Well, and like Hermione said, she would have never used that to destroy a Horcrux. Yeah. Absolutely never. Yeah. So, like, that tells you how bad that fire is. Yeah. So they're fighting their way through the castle and outside the castle on their way to the Whomping Willow because they know that that's, like, the only way to get there in a timely manner without having to fight their way all the way through everything. And they're avoiding the giants that are fighting out there as well. And a large group of Dementors arrive to attack and everybody kind of just freezes because it comes upon them too quickly. They're unable to really create the Patronus because they're very weak from all the fighting they've been doing. 
And Fred and just, just died. Out, and Fred died, so everybody's kind of like in a dark place as it is. Luckily, you have the trio Luna, Ernie, and Seamus to summon their Patronuses that they learned while they were in their Dumbledore army days. Yeah. And they've mastered them, so they're able to save them from the Dementors and allowing them to continue on their journey of chaos that it seems to be right now. They end up arriving at the shack in time to see Voldemort more or less lecturing Snape about why he thinks the wand isn't working as well for him as he'd hope it would, because Snape is the one that killed Dumbledore, and Dumbledore was the last holder, so therefore he's going to have to kill Snape. He sicks Nagini on him to kill him um, with a fatal wound, then basically leaves him there to die. Um, And he's like, well, that solved my problem now. The wand is mine. All I could think in my head was, you didn't use magic to do it. The snake did the killing for you. Well, the question becomes, like, at this point, your understanding of wand lore and such, Nagini should become the master of the Elder Wand? That's that's what my thought was. Like, I'm like, why is the snake the owner of the Elder Wand now? Like, It doesn't even have a hand. Yeah. yeah. And my brain was just like, this is irritating Yeah. at that point. But Harry gets to Snape more or less at his deathbed and Snape or his death floor death floor yeah yeah Snape with the last bit of magic that he has in him produces his memories and forces Harry to put it into a bottle it's just a silvery liquid is the way it's kind of described it's coming out of his ears his nose his eyes and his mouth it's kind of weird that it's coming out of all the orifices well I feel like it's because he had less control at that point because he's literally dying yeah and he has enough to just go take it yeah (laughs) And then the thing I think is really awkward is he stares into Harry's eyes for a reason that we will get into later. Yeah. But I that part's a little creepy. And so Harry gets back in the tunnel and starts heading back to Hogwarts because, like, the battle is still going as far as he knows. And by the time he gets there, Voldemort's basically called back all of his troops as, like, a ceasefire to let the wizards and witches inside the school to collect their dead properly and take care of their injured. And he gives them another hour to send Harry into the forest by himself or else it all breaks out again. Yeah. Harry splits off from the group in kind of the commotion of things and goes to the headmaster's office. I was going to call it Dumbledore's office, but it's not that anymore. No. He gets up there and realizes what he has. Obviously, he already kind of knew. And by the time he got there, he's dumping that stuff right into the pensive so that he can figure out what Snape was trying to show him. And you go into the long biography of Snape's life. Yeah, and after you read this, you told me the exact thing that I figured you would tell me, which is you felt like you understood him more and like you feel bad about how you felt about him in the past. And I was like, I do okay, I don't. Okay, can we skip to the part where you feel the same way I do, which is he's still a piece of crap. Like, cool story, still murder. That's how I feel about him. I don't know that I'll ever feel that way. Because he was asked to murder him. It's not like he... Well, I don't necessarily mean about the murderer. I mean, he still treats people like garbage. But let's go into his backstory because it is important. I really didn't write that many notes about it. It is important, but... Well, there are two main things that come out of Snape's memories. And the one is he had a relationship with Harry's mother. For the longest time. They were friends from before they were even at Hogwarts and then throughout Hogwarts they tried to maintain a friendship that was difficult to give in who he was around, where they both stayed, their two houses. And so this is very important for the rest of the story that he's been in love with Lily since before they were teenagers. 
Yeah, he's always been from that best friend to crush level with Lily since, like, the beginning. Yeah. And then the second piece of information that I think is really important to come out of this chapter is that Harry is a pig up for slaughter. Yeah. And that Harry is the seventh Horcrux, and that he has to die at Voldemort's hand in order for that Horcrux to be... Lapsed. Killed, over, injured. Yeah. Like, the rest of that, I feel like, is good storytelling, and like a lot of people say, better love story than Twilight in one chapter, but it's still... I haven't read Twilight, but I kind of agree. (laughs) Like, it, long-term, like, I think the scene that really bit into me the most and why I was like, now I know why he is the way he is, like, he kind of hates at Harry a little bit, even though he's sworn to protect Harry. Because of the fact that, like, he kind of loathes him for living and his mom dying. Yeah, there's that. There's the fact that he is so similar to his father, who is someone that Snape has always had a problem with his entire career at Hogwarts. And so it's like, you're basically your father, but also you've lived. Yeah, he obviously would hate Harry. On top of that, his his love for Lily made it almost impossible for him to see the Lily-like aspects that Harry did actually have. Because there were some, yeah. you know? Yeah. And he just chose to ignore it. Like, he just promised to keep him safe. And he did, you know, as long as he could. Yeah. And even when, like, it made me flash back to the scene when Dumbledore was killed, when Snape was, like, retreating, he wasn't trying to hurt Harry. He was just trying to hold him off. Right. And you do see how he played his double agent role and how he did a good job of that. And, like, that doesn't make him a good guy, is my point. He still treats students very poorly, to the point where they get trauma from having class with him. But again, he also had traumas, and I know that's an excuse to have trauma to then cause trauma for other people. If anything, it should trigger you not to do that. But he was treated poorly by the students, so I feel like there's kind of that like stuck moment in his brain where like I have to be hard on these students because nobody else will, and that's because that's the way he was taught. And treated in class. I don't know. None of this is an excuse for his behavior. I don't think it's an excuse. I'm just saying that it's partially why the way he is, though. Like, Well, you can have explanations for why a character is the way they are, but they can still be a garbage human being. Right. Garbage character or whatever. I get where you're coming from with this. It's just, I don't have room for Snape apologists. I really don't. Because he is the worst and the most selfish. And I originally felt the way that you did. Like, I had a lot of sympathy for him. I felt bad for him. This poor kid's been bullied his whole life. His parents were always arguing and fighting. He dressed poorly because his parents made him dress this way. And he had a hard time. But having a hard time does not mean you get to force abusive behaviors onto other people. Right. But at the same time, I kind of see some perspective of it and... I'll just leave it at this after this comment. Okay. Because otherwise we're going to be here all night. As somebody who is a manager in some sense, which is similar roles to being a professor, like you teach and you mold the people that you have working under you, I am in the situation where I've worked for very good managers and I've worked for very bad managers. I've learned things from both of them. With the bad managers, I learned how to handle tough conversations where you have to be the bad guy. And it's my job to do that as well from time to time. But also from the good managers, how to handle the situations that don't really require the bad guy to be there at the same time. And like, I took both ends of the aspect. I feel like Snape really just got the short end of the stick. And that's why he's kind of the person he is. But again, it's not an excuse. Like he's still the bad guy that he is. But it's just, 
it's just kind of the reason he is who he is, I guess, is the long sto- long story of it. But I did enjoy seeing the parts where you saw how, especially in books six and seven, he played his role out for Dumbledore. Even in times when he didn't want to. Yeah. Like, he made it abundantly clear a couple times, like, I'm not okay with killing you. Yeah. And he goes, you have to. And so, like, he became a piece of the plan, a cog, more or less, in the motion of all of it. Well, and that's a problem I have with Dumbledore, which is a whole conversation on its own, which is he uses people to get where he wants to go or where he wants them to be. Or to get the things done that need to be done. Like, it's one of those moments where, let's be honest, if Dumbledore didn't put the pieces where he put the pieces, none of the things would have happened the way they would have happened. It was a long-term strategy. Like, if Harry had not been put into an abusive household, you wouldn't have gotten to where you do by the end of book seven. Without a doubt. And so, like, then you have to call into question his decision making. Like, did he knowingly put Harry into an abusive household in order to get to the point that you get to? Probably did. And yet, still, people think that Dumbledore is a good guy. And I really can't see that i can't agree with that he's one of those guys that for the most part was a good guy but made some decisions for the greater good and didn't really take the considerations of the people that were involved in it and i think that's where he kind of can be a little bad but i think he is a morally gray character that comes across as being a good guy yeah but he does some of the worst things to make good things happen right and those are two tangents i didn't want to go off But they happen. So here we are, ladies and gentlemen. Back to the story. Harry comes out of that mess realizing that he's the sacrificial lamb. He can't tell anybody. He doesn't have the stones to really tell anybody what is going on. So he puts on the cloak and starts heading to his demise. I mean, I wouldn't either. Yeah, I wouldn't either because I don't want to be talked out of it. If you realize that for the greater good, you have to sacrifice yourself. I'm sorry. Like, I love you, but I would take one for the team. I would take the L for everybody to take a W. Like, that's just the person I am, I guess. But I like that you have this scene where Harry finally gets all the information he needs and then immediately he goes to do the thing that he's supposed to do, but he runs into Neville Yeah. and he then stops being so secretive. And I don't know if it's because he's trying to work out of being secretive or just like it says in the book, trying to make sure there's someone who can get it done. Yeah, so I think this was another manipulative moment that he learned from Dumbledore where it was just like, listen, I know you're loyal to me. If everything goes to heck in a handbasket, you know, this is what I need you to do no matter what. Otherwise, nothing's going to work. So like he had faith in everybody that was inside of Hogwarts to end up killing him in the long term, killing Voldemort that is, but he knew without a doubt that Ron and Hermione are already going to be under a microscope. So if he has a third person that maybe they're not, expecting to do something to Nagini right. that the guard might be down around him. So Right. Ron and Hermione are heavy targets and Neville has been this uprising force in this book, but not really the head he's... of the bad guys. Yeah. In the bad guys perspective anyways. But after that he's walking down there and he kind of realizes that the open at close type spiel with the golden snitch is it's now. Yeah. Like I'm I'm this marching to my death. Close. This is the close. And so it opens up and the resurrection stone is inside uh, in the shape of obviously the ring. He grabs a hold of it and as he does so, his parents, Sirius and Lupin all appear. Sorry guys, dropped the ball on telling you that Lupin and Tonks died. Yeah, they see... Um, they, he sees them dead and that's part of the commotion that he uses to escape the Great Hall. So there's that. So now the Godfather is looking after 
the child. Technically, the mom is still around and kicking, though, like the grandma of Ted. Yeah, no, it comes out later that Ted is being taken care of by his grandmother, his maternal grandmother. Yeah, but all four of them arrive, and they're basically just, like, hyping him up, more or less, like, we're so proud of you, you've come so far, you've done all these things that, like, nobody else your age would have ever thought to have to do, and, like, you've overcome all these challenges, and... Basically just being his hype man, like, you've done all these things and this is it. Like, this is the final task and you're going to do it because... And at this point, we get this moment from Harry that I think is so important where he's been a soldier so long for Dumbledore and doing what Dumbledore needs him and wants him to do for so long. But then he has a moment where you see that he is just a 17 year old boy and he's scared and he asks does it hurt yeah and they end up saying it's quicker and easier than falling asleep yeah and that i think really triggered this like all right i'm in like i'm all in so uh he's basically walking along under he's under the invisibility cloak if i remember correctly still he's walking along with his apparitions of his family and friends that passed and he sees two death eaters that are kind of like i guess he's not going to show and he starts following them back to wherever they're going because obviously they're going to report the information back to voldemort that he didn't come into the forest he follows them all the way back and starts to see like the giants on the very outskirts of this well, it was the same place that the original like spiders were right the spider colony yeah. more or less if i remember correctly and voldemort's just kind of up there where Blank on the name of the spider and I feel so bad. Aragog. Aragog was kind of holding it down last time. Voldemort is preparing his troops for the next wave. And like, I can't believe he didn't come. And then Harry's like, huh, I'm here though. And none of you even knew I was. He just stands there. He's not trying to fight. Like he's prepared to, to die at that point. You know, like it's what needs to happen as one of the final horcruxes it is it's what had to happen yeah at that point voldemort's like cool bro vada cadavra harry's dead basically is the way the scene makes it seem we know that he ends up in like some form of limbo more or less between being dead and alive he meets dumbledore and gets like some strong questions in on dumbledore like listen you have treated me like absolute dirt now that i realize this you're gonna answer these questions which i'm really glad they got a lot of that off the chest harry eventually asks like am i dead and he goes no i'm dead yeah (laughs) you're not yet and here's why dumbledore lays down the facts about like when voldemort takes the blood of harry away that He's basically putting Harry's blood into him and in turn taking another level of like protective magic that he didn't even realize existed. And I was like, how is Voldemort so smart but so stupid when it comes to understanding like those levels of magic? Like it's just weird to me, but I know that his focus was obviously around dark magic, not all magic, and that could be why. Yeah, well, he also was less understanding about things that are about protection and love and all this stuff that Harry has. And he's the other side of the coin, which is all dark magic and all of the evil ways you can keep yourself alive. Yeah, but Harry ends up deciding to come back to his body in the process is playing dead in the middle of all these death eaters because like you don't just stand up and go i'm back right (laughs) because you're vastly outnumbered obviously and that trick probably won't work a second time yeah the magic worked for you once it protected you once not twice he's pretending to be dead and voldemort sends narcissa up to check to make sure he's dead 
and like he's overhearing conversations like Voldemort are you okay like he collapsed as well right and so he's like wow I have more power over him than I thought I did and like you kind of got that moment of like Harry's back to where he was like he's ready to be the soldier that destroys Voldemort and it was exciting when Narcissa comes up to Harry she notices his heartbeat and she whispers to him and asks if Draco is still alive he goes yes He's still alive. And Narcissa goes, yep, he's dead. He is dead. 100% dead. D-E-A dead. Well, she just wanted to get back to her son. Right. And so Voldemort starts playing with his dead food. This is the way I kind of saw it. Like, you know, lifting him up, hovering him around in front of the crowds of people that are cheering about Harry's death. And then asks Hagrid to come pick him up and carry him to the castle. So they're marching up to the castle and Voldemort basically calls everybody out of the castle like he's dead. Harry Potter is dead. You have nothing to fight for anymore. Just lay down your arms and everything will be okay. Join the dark side. Yeah. You know, the dark side of the force, we have cookies. But in this instance, you don't want their cookies. And he keeps trying to use a silencing spell on the people that were fighting from inside the castle because they're angry and upset and are shouting and like getting rowdy. It's the best way to put it. It keeps not working. Basically, the magic isn't working because the power of love is overpowering his magic. Well, and the fact of the matter is that Harry went to the forest to die for those people. Yeah. And so the same kind of protection that his mother had over him, he now has over them. Right. So Voldemort's spells just aren't working on them. At a certain point, Neville's like, I'm the boss now. He walks out there and just starts going off. Uh, Voldemort's like, listen, you're going to stand completely still. Force him. I don't know. Is it a Cruciatus that he uses or Imperius? He uses a curse on him to keep him. I'm not sure. I want to say they use the Cruciatus on Neville, but. That's what I thought. I'm not sure that it was Voldemort that used the spell, though. I'm not 100%. Because Voldemort was basically trying to persuade him to come to their side. Like, you could be a powerful Death Eater because you're pure blood and we know Join how powerful you are. Side. Yeah. Neville was disarmed for breaking out of the crowd and challenging Voldemort. And he asks who it is. Bellatrix explains it's Neville, the son of the Aurors. Voldemort remembers. Said, you're pure blood, aren't you? And he said, so what? He said, we need your kind. And he said, I'll join you when hell freezes over. And then the silencing charm broke again if that's your choice so be it and then he summons the sorting hat so he was never frozen he was just standing out in front of everybody else still good to know but the sorting hat is on fire on top of his head and because he's a true Gryffindor and he's showing a moment of bravery, the sword of Gryffindor appears. In response, he chops off Nagini's head because the protective spell is no longer over the snake because they're under the impression that Harry's dead, so there's no more risk to the Horcruxes. Right. In that moment, everything erupts. Magic curses start flying back and forth, back and forth, and none of the Death Eaters' curses are hitting the defenders of Hogwarts because of that magic of sacrifice that Harry made for all of them. Um, You're just seeing Death Eaters basically being taken out left and right all over the place. Harry puts his invisibility cloak back on, disappears out of Hagrid's hands, and Hagrid's like, what the F? Like... Where'd Harry go? Where'd Harry go? And the fight ensues into the castle and all the way back up into the Great Hall. Uh, When Harry gets up to the Great Hall, as he's fighting his way, helping the other students that are dueling the Death Eaters on his way up, he gets inside and he sees 
McGonagall, Shacklebolt, and Slughorn are fighting Voldemort. Voldemort's more or less just holding off the three of them by himself. And that Luna, Ginny, and Hermione are all fighting Bellatrix, which I was like, dang, freaking Dumbledore's army is taking on the right hand of Voldemort, and that's that's no easy task, right? as we know. So it's, like, super impressive. And then Mama Weasley comes in. Ding, ding, here we go. She is just like, you're not killing anybody else that's part of my family anymore. I'm here to jack you up. She specifically says, not my daughter, you Yeah. Which I will cut that word. Yeah. At some point during that fight, Miss Weasley ends up getting the upper hand on Bellatrix and kills her, which causes her to be, or causes Voldemort to be greatly upset because, like, like you killed my, the closest person to me, basically. In turn, starts to freak out and Harry's like, okay, y'all need to stop fighting because the last fight's between me and this mother right now. Like, it's time for this to end. They're circling like a school school uh, schoolyard school fight, fight, like walking around, talking their trash, more or less back and forth. And Voldemort's like, you only ever had success fighting me because you always were either very lucky or somebody was there to take the fight for you. Otherwise, you'd be dead already. Uh, Harry's like, I know more about magic than you, and this is why that wand isn't going to work for you, and just starts like breaking it down like lineup-wise, like how he has no right to have control over it, and how it actually rightfully belongs to him because he actually disarmed... The actual... Owner of the wand, Draco Malfoy, of all things. Like, whew, that circle of, like, story was like, woof. It was really entertaining to actually see all that because, like, it was very much him going, like, I know more about wand lore than you do, stupid. And I'm just a kid. And, of course, you know, Voldemort's not going to take any of that crap. So he tries to use a killing curse on Harry. Harry uses Expelliarmus. They collide into one another, causing the killing curse to ricochet back and taking Voldemort out. Ding dong, the witch is dead. The wicked witch is dead. In this instance, the wicked wizard. I really, really... The ending was just really intense really, really fast. Like, it, it felt like there was so much buildup, and then it was like, here it is, and gone. You know, just as quick as it was there. Well, so, I feel like you would feel that way no matter what. It's been seven years of buildup. Yeah. Harry's adamant about getting rid of the things. Like, he left the stone in the forest when he was there dealing with being killed. Then the wand he reburies with Dumbledore... Well, first he repairs his own wand. Oh, yeah, he repairs his own wand wand with the Elder Wand, which makes sense because, like, it's the Wand of Wands that it would be capable of repairing his wand back to normal shape. I think the logic there's a little more flimsy, but I'll go with it. He he just died. Fix his wand. Yeah, and without a doubt at that point, then the Elder Wand is definitely his without question. It already was, but it really was at that point. He ends up burying it back with Dumbledore with the theory of, if I'm not carrying it, nobody can kill me to take it. Which, I'm like, is that really the way it needs to work? Like, couldn't they just kill you? That's pretty flawed logic anyway. Draco never even touched it. And it was his, so like... Yeah, that's where I'm at. Like, couldn't they just kill Harry and then find it and then it would be theirs? Like, based on the theory that he laid out? Harry physically disarmed Draco. So if someone just snatches your wand from you, then go dig up the Elder Wand. Yeah. So, like, the logic there is not 100%. Yeah. But he's a 17-year-old boy who just died and killed someone else. And then you have the epilogue, which... Everyone agrees is garbage. The naming of the kids really pissed me off. I... (laughs) 
<laughs> I went on a tangent about it with you. You did. Because I'm like, I feel like the creativity was pretty creative through the entire series of the books. And then it was just like, well, I'm going to write this stupid piece of trash that doesn't need to be in the book. I didn't need that. I didn't care what ended up happening with Harry. This isn't like a Hallmark movie where they kiss once and it's over. Like, right. you know. What would have made a more satisfying ending is the way it ended before the epilogue. Like, you could have just stopped it there. The battle was won. Everything was fine. It was all over. And the world was hunky-dory again. But I feel like either she felt the need or her publisher felt the need to wrap everything up in a nice, neat bow and give everyone, like, someone to pair off with and a career to be in. And, like... So here's my dilemma. Even though Voldemort was dead, the Death Eaters still existed. You could have written an epilogue about them hunting down the final groups of Death Eaters. Like, I would have read that. Well, there was something that came out through Pottermore saying that after the series is over, the Aurors track down the Death Eaters for the next few years and put them in Azkaban or whatever. So in the not official canon, that does happen. Right. As I think I told you, I I did enjoy the series overall. I'm not going to go in deep to the epilogue. I will tell you that I hated it. I hated the names. Something that I did like is that Neville becomes the herbology Teacher. professor. Yeah. Like, I, I agree with that. We can keep that. The rest of that, I'm not so sure about. The names, like, even the pairings, I don't necessarily care about. Because, like, who ends up with their high school sweetheart? Not absolutely every couple ever. Like, yeah. most of the ones here. It was just blah. Like, it, it was like, it was such a good ending and then all of a sudden it was, like, boring. But overall, I enjoyed the series. I'm looking forward to whatever I end up reading next but next week we'll be talking about the final movie adaptation from book form and I'm sure I'm gonna hate it just like I've hated most of the movies now probably I will like the movie for the movie but I will hate the adaptation from the book that which seems is to be the way a it stance goes. a lot of people have so that's fine and then from there, I'm not sure where we're jumping off to next. I know we'll be taking a break at that point yes. from the podcast for Christmas. So we have next week's episode, then we're taking a break for Christmas and New Year's, and then we will be back at it. I'm thinking with the Old Guard comic and comic to movie adaptation in one episode. That's because be the a comic, lot. the comic is so short. Yeah, it literally took me an hour to read the comic. So, but the reason we're deciding to take the break is not only because we need time to kind of plan and plot. We really want to be a little more creative and come up with some more fun things for our listeners to have as well. Kind of plot out next year's season. Most likely two seasons. Yeah. But we have already talked your ear off. This is the longest episode we've ever recorded by a lot. But I kind of figured it was going to be that way as well. So a lot um, happened in this third of the book. So thank you guys so much for listening. We really appreciate your time. Make sure you check out all of the social media which will be linked in the show notes. And we'll catch you next week for our final sports episode before our break. And the final book episode before the break. And you guys have a great weekend and we'll catch you then. Bye. Bye.